Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, psychedelics, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, we are back with another special hostful episode, a conversation between Lewis Goldberg, KCSA partner, Phil Carlson, KCSA Managing Director, and Chris Crane, KCSA's Director of Cannabis Development. In this episode, our trio convenes to discuss the recently published U.S. Department of Health and Human Services documents, which recommends to the Drug Enforcement Agency that cannabis be rescheduled to Schedule 3. Listen as our hosts discuss how this will affect the legal cannabis market in the United States, possible implications for cannabis companies, and what the process looks like to move cannabis from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. If you're interested in learning more about what we talk about today, please visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow us on all the top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation about the latest news in the cannabis world with Lewis Goldberg, Phil Carlson, and Chris Crane of KCSA Strategic Communications. Welcome to The Green Rush. Today, we're doing a special episode, a conversation between me, Lewis Goldberg, Phil Carlson, and Chris Crane. Last Friday, January 12th, 2024, um, documents from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services were leaked and then confirmed on Tuesday, January 16th. The documents recommended to the Drug Enforcement Agency that cannabis be rescheduled to Schedule 3. Since 1970, cannabis has been deemed a Schedule 1 substance pursuant to the Controlled Substances Act. And under the terms of that act, as a Schedule 1 drug, cannabis is defined as having a high potential for abuse, no currently accepted medical use and treatment, and a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision, which we all know is bullshit. Um, I'm joined today by Chris Crane, um, the Director of Cannabis Development for KCSA, a founder of Forefront, a cannabis multi-state operator, and the current chair of the NCIA. Also with us is Phil Carlson, a managing director on the investor relations team at KCSA and one of the founders of our cannabis practice, which we started back in 2014. Phil has worked with dozens, if not hundreds of public and private cannabis companies, helping them raise capital, achieve the fairest valuation for their publicly traded equities. And basically he's the guy who talks to Wall Street about weed. And as you know, I'm Lewis Goldberg, a partner at KCSA and the founder of our cannabis and psychedelics practices. So guys, well, nothing has actually happened yet. The news from HHS is truly positive for the cannabis industry. Phil, can you put into perspective what this means just generally? So, you know, this is this is something that we've been waiting on, right? At the end of August, you, you know, we got there was rumors floating around that somebody had seen the the recommendation from HHS to the DEA in regards to um, descheduling cannabis from a Schedule One drug, um, even though that first, I guess, that first memo was highly redacted. Um, you know, there wasn't a confirmation on this being brought to Schedule Three, but 
you know, that's what we were confirmed with last Friday is it's going to schedule three. So, you know, with the rescheduling, is there going to be anything in regards to, you know, helping these companies out through the banking system or having these companies go from being listed on the OTC to like the NASDAQ or the NYSE? You know, we don't have a clear direction on that yet, but, you know, this is definitely a major catalyst for the industry overall. I would say probably the biggest catalyst outside of, you know, federal legalization here. Um, a descheduling of cannabis, which I'm sure we'll go into in greater detail later, is this would eliminate the 280 federal taxation, which basically taxes these operators on gross margins. And, you know, it's going to open up free cash flow for a number of these guys, um, multi-state operators, single-state operators, and put them in a better financial position than where, where they are today. So from my standpoint, this is great. We just we still have a long way to go in terms of let's get this across the goal line. And when that happens, you know, it's going to be a boom for a lot of these guys. But this is definitely a great step forward. Yes, well, you, know, you, you are, in the, you know, the, of all of us, you're the one who is most deeply involved in the industry. What is your take on this? I, I, look, I think it's I think it's overall a very big deal. Uh, I think you know this is probably the most comprehensive report out of a federal agency recognizing the medicinal value of cannabis. Really, probably going all the way back to the 1972 Schaefer report. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, that, look, that in and of itself, having the Department of Health and Human Services recognize that cannabis has been misscheduled, misclassified in Schedule 1, that it does have uh, recognized medicinal value and it doesn't have that high potential for abuse uh, of a Schedule 1 substance is a big deal, right? We can even if the DEA for some reason doesn't go along with this, and I know we're going to get into that momentarily, um, you know, we're always going to be able to point to the uh, you know, always going to be able to point to this report as evidence that the federal government recognizes that cannabis is misscheduled. Um, in terms of its real world impact, right, that really depends on what happens next um, and what the DEA decides to do here. Um, if they do go along with this, which, you know, we're all very hopeful and, and I think is probably probably going to be the case. But again, we, you know, we, we, we could delve more in detail on that if we want. Um, if we get that from the DEA, then this is almost certainly going to happen. It really then just becomes a matter of when, not if. Um, and that'll have, you know, real world implications for the cannabis industry and cannabis policy in general. Yeah, so let's what do you talk about that, like, what that do you, if. Well, hold on, Lou. Let's uh, like, Chris, do you like a, a time frame? What do you think? Because it took four and a half months to get where we are today from a leak of the letter to actually seeing that letter. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can I, I don't think we can extrapolate a whole lot on the time frame from how long it took for us to get the letter. That was a like a Freedom of Information Act request process. So like, we knew that the letter was right. out there. Uh, we just didn't know exactly what it said. And that, you know, those types of FOIAs do to, at the federal level do generally take months. Um, what we're really we're, what we're really wondering about right now is when is the DEA going to announce whether or not they're going to accept HHS's recommendation um, or if they're going to modify it in any, in any way, right? The DEA has full authority, which they've reminded members of Congress of when they've inquired about this recently, um, to make this rescheduling decision um, in lieu of some act of Congress. Uh, so, you know, they... So let's talk about that. 
let, yeah. let, let's pause, pause right. for one second. Right. Cause like, it, you know, marijuana moment has done really fantastic reporting on this issue. Um, and if you haven't, you know, we'll, we'll put in the show notes, a link to the story on today's marijuana moment on this, but they reported that the C- congressional research service, the, the part of Congress that explains what's going on, um, in the world, whether it's from an agency perspective or literally in the world, and then makes recommendations to Congress on like how they can handle this from a legislative perspective. Um, CRS has, has said about this issue that uh, Congress has a role in rescheduling that, quote, if lawmakers want to change the legal status of marijuana, it has the broad authority to do so before or after the DEA makes any scheduling decisions. Um, and it listed a number, and this is what CRS did, uh, a number of existing legislative proposals that would relax federal regulation on marijuana while noting that Congress can also to impose either more stringent or looser controls, you know, which basically means fundamentally, whatever the DEA decides, Congress can either make it weaker or stronger. So if DEA says, yes, we're going to go to schedule three or no, we're going to go to schedule two or even worse, F-U-H-H-S, we're going to stay at Schedule 1, Congress can make its own decisions. Given the fucked up nature of Congress, do we have any hope at all that Congress will wade into this issue, especially in an election year? No. Congress Either is one not of you going can. To. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, no. The answer is no. Congress is not going to weigh in, uh, weigh in on this. Not this year. Um, certainly not in a divided Congress. Um, we haven't gotten Congress to act on safe banking yet. Just something as, as you know, something as niche as banking access for the cannabis industry. I, the chances that they're going to actually move on de- a rescheduling on their own, I think is, is slim to none. So I have zero hope that Congress is going to move on this. If this is going to happen before the 2024 presidential election, it's going to happen because the Biden administration does it unilaterally. Um, that requires action. And when I say the Biden administration, that, that includes the DEA, right? The DEA is uh, a wing of the Department of Justice, which is within the executive branch. If this is going to happen, it's going to happen through the executive branch uh, being driven largely by the Biden administration. And frankly, this is, you know, this is being driven by uh, the Biden reelection campaign that wants to see this happen before the election, because they think it's something that may motivate young voters. That is the only path for this to happen in in 2024. Phil, what do you think? And by the way, it's interesting, you know, because Ann Milgram, who's a DEA administrator, is a New Jerseyan. Right. She she grew up in East Brunswick. Her her mother was a professor at Rutgers. Like she was a judge here. So the DEA administrator has seen firsthand in court the impact of these rules. You know, Phil, I know you don't know her, but, you know, putting on your Swami hat here, you have any feel on what where the DEA would go? Listen, if it's Schedule 2, I think that's a bigger disaster than leaving it as Schedule 1. Yeah. So if it's Schedule 3, then it, I, it's, it's, it can, it's either Schedule 3 or bust. And that's the way it has to be, right? Like, leaving it as Schedule 1 would be a disaster, but not as bad as, like, dropping it to Schedule 2. Schedule 3, like I said, opens up the 280E, gets money back in the pockets of some of these – all these companies – and it puts them in a better uh, financial uh, position. 
So let's talk about that difference between schedule, like just finally schedule one and, and schedule three. You know, again, I'm going to quote marijuana moment because they did, just did a great job with this and said, you know, with respect to marijuana, to medical marijuana, a key difference between the placement in schedule one and schedule three is that a substance in schedule three, it does have an accepted medical use and may lawfully be dispensed by prescription while set schedule one substance, it cannot. Um, however, you know, if it goes into a schedule three, the FDA would have oversight over these prescriptions. And right now, the way that the medical market works is like you, you get a prescription from a doctor, but it's really kind of like a quasi prescription, you know, so um, if we have to go through the FDA route, at least on the medical side, does this mean that CVS, that Dwayne Reed, that that the big pharmaceutical companies and the big um, uh, pharmacy companies win? Are we going to go get our medical weed out of the local CVS? No, I uh, yeah, <laughs> I I'm right. I'm with you on that. Why? I, I, but here's the thing so well international companies that we have dealt with in the past this a number of the ceos would say listen at the end of the day you're going to end up buying your cannabis from cvs or walgreens but it's not going to work here in the u.s it, it 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 really is not uh you know there are a number of factors in play for that but i would like would cvs and walgreens want to get into that business from a mon monetary standpoint, yes, they would, but I can't see them going down that road. Um, you know, Chris, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, we're, we're almost talking about two different things. Right? We're talking about uh, is, is, is CVS and Walgreens, are, you know, are they going to be the distributors of medical cannabis? No. And they, they even really acknowledge as much in this, uh, the, the congressional research research report um or congressional research service recognizes this in there saying that you know in order for pharmacies to dispense cannabis it, they would still have to go through a full fda approval process and that's just not something that the fda does for botanical medicines um so you're you're not you're not going to see a situation where you're going to cvs or walgreens and buying a you know an eighth of blue dream for your you know for your medical needs that that's not happening um what likely will happen as a result of this is that you know, research is going to become much easier to conduct on um, not just cannabis, but cannabinoids, um, right? Because researchers will have access to cannabis uh, much more easily than they do as a schedule one substance, which is very difficult for researchers to get their hands on. Uh, pharmaceutical companies will be able to access these cannabinoids, these compounds um, and these products, and they will be able to create replicable pharmaceutical cannabinoid products. Um, so you likely will see a wave of new cannabinoid-based medications, prescription pharmaceuticals, um, that will come out over the course of the next decade, right? It still takes many years to go through this process, and none of those have started yet. So we're probably talking about something, you know, five, six to 10 years out uh, before this really becomes a reality. But you likely will see a whole new classification of cannabinoid-based pharmaceuticals. Those will be sold in CVS uh, and, and, and Walgreens, uh, right, in your local pharmacy, what we currently consider medical marijuana, right, where you get a recommendation from a doctor and go to your local dispensary and you can purchase any sort of cannabis product that you think helps, that is much more akin to herbal remedies, um, right, Alter, you know, alternative remedies, herbal, you know, herbal remedies, and, and, and that's where it's largely lie. Um, it's not 
it, it's not prescription medication. These are sort of two different things. So I think what you're going to basically have are prescription can, uh, cannabinoid prescription medications, right? Sold at CVS and, 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 and Walgreens and pharmacies. You'll have essentially herbal, you know, herbal wellness products that people use for the virtually the same medical uses, but are bought through likely still dispensaries. Um, and you probably will have some dispensaries that market themselves as more wellness focused than recreational. And then you'll have your cannabis products for everybody else that we like to use, whatever it is, recreationally, health and wellness, what, you know, whatever, whatever uses people use them for, that'll still be sold out of dispensaries as well. So you're talking like oh. CBD, CBG, CBN, those can. No, I'm talking all of it. Even, even, even THC, uh, right? I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll have various, various cannabinoid compounds that'll be synthesized into replicable, uh, you know, pharmaceutical grade products. Those are what'll be sold out of, out of, out of the pharmacies. Everything else, right? Right now that you can get out of a dispensary, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's a, a, a THC product or a compound product or straight flour or oil, that that will likely continue to be sold in the or in and out of dispensaries rather than these pharm- rather than than as sort of competing with pharmaceuticals in uh, traditional uh, pharmacies. I'm so you think- I hear what you guys are saying, and I'm not sure I completely agree with you in the fact that I think that companies like CVS and Walgreens are big public companies and they're always looking for more sources of revenue and more sources of, um, of uh, you know, profitable revenue. I could see them targeting some of the MSOs and saying, I'm going to buy you and I'm going to run you and I'm going to either keep your brand or rebrand your dispensaries um, and focus this on a wellness play so that I can capture this revenue and then maybe use this um, uh, to, you know, to, to increase my profitability. I can see that happen. I could be wrong, but you know, a lot of in, in different States, a lot of these, these places sell alcohol, right? You don't see, them, you know, completely segmenting it, but you can go into CVS in some places and buy beer or wine or hard liquor. Why wouldn't they then buy a dispensary chain and say, all right, we're, we're in the weed business and it's, we're going to position it as, um, um, you know, a wellness product. Well, well, they may, but that, that, that's not going to happen until after descheduling, not with rescheduling, right? Cause with rescheduling and one of the things that the CRS made clear, and, and this is true, all of the existing state legal cannabis markets are still going to be federally illegal. They're not going to be any more federally legal if it goes to Schedule 3 than they are right now in Schedule 1. Where it's really going to help them is on this issue of 280E. Um, and, you know, and, and, and look, it, it gives more legitimacy to these state legal markets. But CVS is not going to sell you know, recreational or adult use cannabis out of their, out of their store when they have a DEA license to prescribe or, or to dispense prescribed medications, controlled prescribed medications, it would be way too big of a risk for them to be involved in something that is explicitly federally illegal um, when they are so heavily regulated as a pharmacy. Um, once it becomes descheduled and fully legal, sure, then they, absolutely they're going to want to get into this. And in the states where it's allowed for them, where they're allowed to sell alcohol, they're going to push hard for them to be able to sell cannabis products there as well. And that'll, be a, and that'll be and that'll be a state by state decision at that point. Right. There are many states where CVS but, can't sell alcohol. Um, right. right? And, and that's why I think they'll buy buy and keep it at an arm's length. Right. Like there's no reason not to buy a 500 square foot or a thousand square foot retail facility and just run it and capture that revenue. 
So putting aside what we just discussed about who's going to buy what, and we'll get into that and more in a little bit, um, you know, being a schedule one company has really <laughs> had an unbelievably massive negative impact on this industry, especially from a capital markets perspective. It's made banking and insurance a nightmare. You can't list on, you know, the New York Stock Exchange or on the NASDAQ. Phil, from your perspective, from a capital markets perspective, and let's try and hold 280E aside for a moment. From a banking perspective, uh, a public company, like uplisting perspective, what does a reschedule mean? It doesn't mean anything for these guys. Um, at the end of the day, all of this is basically 280E. The banking, there's nothing in this memo that states anything where, hey, you can go to Bank of America and open up a bank account, or you're going to be uplisting to the NASDAQ or the NYSE. I think at the end of the day, with the descheduling, I think it will be easier for these guys to uplist to, say, the TSX and off the CSE versus going to like a NASDAQ or, or New York Stock Exchange. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's just it, we're still going to have to deal with the you know, th these other exchanges. Um, but I do feel though institutions will start circling here. Um, you know, given the fact that where we're at right now, it's what two to 3% institutional ownership for these guys. You know, there is a long runway here, a long runway. And when these guys start coming in, these stocks will move, you know, like after the last what was it? Um, Biden's announcement in 2022, these stocks doubled in value after that. So the retail guys obviously are in this heavily, but once we, the institution, we're going to start seeing some, some major movement. Can we plumb that a little deeper? Because, you know, if you think about another drug that's schedule three, ketamine is a, a schedule three drug. There are a lot of companies that are doing research in ketamine, um, whether they be the Thai life sciences of the world or others, and that are clinical providers like Field Trip was a, a NASDAQ listed clinical ketamine provider. You know, are, do you think that real institutions are going to now look at cannabis and say, all right, it's schedule three. It's, it's the same as a lot of other drugs that I have invested in in the past. I'm comfortable. Do you expect Phil or Chris, either one, you know, that we're going to see institutional investment in the cannabis industry? And if so, when? Uh, I, absolutely. Um, you know, when and I'm going to quote Aaron Gray's uh, report here um, in regards to Schedule 3, that the top MSOs were trading at about seven times their 2024, even a multiple compared to CBG companies at 14 times. These guys, like in, institutions are going to have to come in here. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is a high growth industry institutions aren't going to want to miss out on the upside. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to agree. I think it might take a little bit longer only because remember we're, we're, we're talking here. Uh, one of the differences we're talking about when you talk about psychedelics versus cannabis um, is the psychedelics companies are trying to create actual FDA approved pharmaceutical products as opposed to investing in a publicly traded cannabis MSO, which is still operating outside of federal law. And that is a real distinction. Um, so I think, you know, you probably see some of the bigger institutionals more comfortable with psychedelics companies 
because they are going through fully federal legal channels um, than coming into the cannabis industry without uh, some sort of safe banking to to back that up, right? Some sort of explicit approval on the on the part of the federal government. I do think that most of the institutionals still stay out for a while. Um, I do think, though, that just getting rid of 280E likely brings in quite a bit new lending, um, whether it's from institutionals or um, you know family offices or private lenders, right? Folks who've been sitting on the sidelines. If for no other reason than right now, you know, particularly with margins being squeezed all around the country, companies simply do not have the free cash flow to service debt. Um, it's why the lenders who are currently in the space you know, tend to be kind of predatory, right? Because they know they're the only games in the only game in town. And so they can charge these absolutely exorbitant rates because there is no competition for their lending services. Um, but if all of a sudden companies are no longer paying this massive penalty to the IRS in the form of 280E, I think that brings in all sorts of new sorts, new sources of capital, probably not the big institutionals yet for the reasons that I've mentioned earlier. Um, although they, they, they're, they're, chomping at the bit to, to get into this. Um, and when they have federal approval, they will. But I do think it opens up new sources of capital. I do think that that leads to runs on the stocks and increase in stock prices and you know, lots of good things ahead um, uh, for the industry as a result of those. So, so Phil, you're talking, to, that's a great look. Go ahead. Hold on. I was just going to ask you about 280E. So what's your thoughts on 280E now? Now that like this gets rescheduled to three, we're all assuming 280E goes away. Is that the case? And if so, when and what impact does it have? Well, yeah, I think 280E well, does yeah. go away. I mean, even CRS was pretty clear about that in their report, that that's, you know, that's the big benefit for cannabis companies is uh, as soon as it goes to Schedule 3, 280E is no longer a factor. Now, unfortunately, I, it will almost certainly not be retroactive. Um, so these companies that are faced, you know, <laughs> that, are, that, 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 that currently have these massive 280E liabilities on their books, that probably doesn't go away for them. Although, you know, it may give them some leeway to, you know, start new, start negotiating with, uh, uh, you know, negotiating with the IRS for, you know, better payment plans and whatnot. Like it may have an impact, but, um, but, but by and large, I mean, just having 280E go away on, on the go forward to, to massive impact, I, I would argue it, it, it potentially an, an even bigger impact on the industry than, um, if we were to get safe banking. It's, it's a lifeline. Yeah. To all these guys, even like the, the smaller players that are paying these crazy taxes, which 280 is it's effectively an 80% tax rate on all these companies that goes away. Cash yeah. flow comes in, you know, and Chris, like going back to what you'd said about the larger institutions, you, you know, you're talking about like the fidelities and the Wellingtons of the world where they're still going to take their time to, to come into play here. And I, like, I agree with you on that, but there's going to be much, a number of new institutions that will be coming into this space as 280, you know, is taken away, the scheduling happens and it's a win. It's a win for the industry. Massive win, massive win. Yeah. No disagreement there. So I, I, I another question I have for you guys is, and I, I've had a running joke with our mutual friend, Adam Smith out in Oregon about uh, rescheduling. Um, Adam and I have had an annual bet since 2019 that this is the year that we're going to see interstate commerce, right? That we'll see weed from Oregon being sold in New Jersey or weed from California sold in Maine. Um, we'll reschedule. What impact would rescheduling have on that? And do I owe Adam? Am I going to owe Adam a dollar this year? Nope. Uh, I don't think you're going to owe Adam a dollar this year. Sorry, Adam. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, rescheduling, uh, rescheduling, I don't believe has any real impact on interstate commerce other than, you know, there there's harder to quantify downstream impacts of this, which I do think we need to acknowledge um, that it may just make it, 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 it may make these states more willing to move forward with the types of state programs that that Adam is uh, that Adam has been pushing for. Right. You've got states like Oregon and, and Colorado and uh, California, I believe, now that have passed laws saying that they will engage in interstate commerce based on a change in federal law or directive. And it's the or directive part that is that is that is key here. New Jersey, it looks like, is about to pass a law um, that would allow to that allow for the import of um, uh, of, of cannabis from other states. Um, and you're, you're likely going to have other other states pass similar laws over the course of the next couple of years. If you the combination of rescheduling and the recognition on the part of the federal government that this isn't as dangerous or as bad as they've previously said with states passing these laws, that could provide the the pressure and or political cover, more likely political cover to the Justice Department to issue some sort of memo or you know guidance memo, Cole memo-esque um, memo that would say that essentially if if states have a law allowing for it, we don't see it as a good use of prosecutor, prosecutorial resource uh, or prosecutorial resources to go after states that are engaging in interstate commerce, provided that they are doing so in, um, you know, in, in, in conjunction with state law. That's possibility. And so I, I, while, while rescheduling alone would not impact interstate commerce, it could it could sort of create the groundswell that could lead to it in you know, the near-ish future. So one of my favorite, you know, sayings is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, um, which is like absolutely bullshit. But, you know, the idea of like, you don't have an impact beyond where you are. The reality is, you know, American U.S. Um, regulatory policy has had a global impact. You know, after the Controlled Substances Act became law in 1970, the, the U.S. put pressure on the United Nations to amend the Convention on Psychotropic Substances. Um, and that basically became the de facto international law, which banned everything from benzodiazepines and cannabis and MDMA. Um, it, with this rescheduling, the United States is basically in part admitting, well, at least when it came to cannabis, that the war on drugs was a failed war. What impact will our rescheduling have globally? Like what impact will this have on, on the UN? What impact will it have on other countries? You know, will they follow suit? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, I don't think we really know the answer to that, but I think it can only, it can only, it can only be positive. Um, right. So many countries around the world still look to the United States um, as a leader, particularly when it comes to issues of drug policy and drug control. Um, I think if the United States goes forward with rescheduling, it kind of gives a bit of a green light or tacit approval to countries, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. Um, so other countries throughout Latin America, right? If all of a sudden you have, you know, descheduled cannabis in the United States and fully legal cannabis in Canada, right? Like that could have a, an impact on legislative efforts that are currently underway in, in Mexico in particular, um, right? In other uh, South American countries, Colombia, right? Has been moving towards full legalization, mm -hmm. right? It's been med legal medical there for a long time. I could see it having an impact there, right? It, a lot of these countries, particularly Latin American countries, Caribbean countries, they're very 
very concerned about the United States enforcing um, uh, international drug control uh, policies and international drug control treaties. And if the U.S. is 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 not doing it in their own country, it does give a level of approval to other countries. I, I, obviously, descheduling would have a much bigger impact, but this does show the U.S. moving in that direction and I think gives countries reasons to be less concerned uh, about what the U.S. may do. I mean, to put this in context, I, I, I remember when I was working at Normal, this was like 2004 or so, um, and Jamaica at that time announced plans to just, I think it was just to decriminalize Right. Like they weren't even talking about full legalization, um, but it was like blanket decriminalization. And the then, then George W. Bush administration threatened a naval blockade of the island of Jamaica if they went forward <laughs> with their, with with decriminalization. And it stopped the I mean, it's, it stopped that legislative effort in its tracks. Right. Like this is this is the way the U.S. Op really operated really up through like the middle of the Obama administration um, when the federal government started taking a step back on this stuff. And, you know, since then, we've seen Uruguay go legal. We've seen Canada go legal. We've seen Colombia go medical. Um, right. We've seen other other Latin American countries go medical. We've seen movement towards recreational. So I think it has an impact. And I think, you know, Europe is also following this. I think, you know, what we do has less of an impact on Europe. Um, I think what Germany does uh, this year and if they go forward with legalization this year, that That'll have a much bigger impact um, or domino effect on the rest of Europe than anything we do in the U.S. But they are, you know, they're we're all sort of in the same alliance here. And this 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 gives tacit approval, I think, to these European countries that are looking at this to, you know, to continue to move forward. Um, so it it, 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 it probably has a downstream impact, even if it's not explicit. You know, you talk to investors all over the world, Phil, especially in the U.K., Australia and Europe. Any thoughts on what this will do to them? Will they, will we see more money flow into the U.S. from these countries, investors in these countries, because they're more comfortable? Or is this is this going to be a, a nothing burger? We, they're going to just say, eh, it's not a fundamentally big change and we're not going to deploy more capital here. Uh, rescheduling won't be a factor for the, the international investor. Um, I think that's more just for the U.S. and Canadian investors here, um, you know, the institutions internationally, they have been getting burned left and right, uh, you know, dealing with companies in their own countries. So seeing them make a play here in the U.S., it, you know, there will be some, but I'm not saying that the floodgates are going to open up. But there are, you know, people that we're talking to, they have put money to work in, in the U.S. And um, I just think, if they're going to do it in the U.S., they're going to put it in the, into the top, into the big guys here. You're not going to see it come into the smaller guys. That's a really good segue into the, the second to last question, which is winners and losers, right? I mean, if you look at the the public companies in the space, like the biggest public company is Curly, and it's about $3.5 billion. The biggest public company in, in Canada is Tilray. It's around $2 billion of market cap. But then there are smaller guys. Chris, you know, you're a founder of Forefront, um, which is a, a very, you know, from a public company perspective, small um, multi-state operator. And you've got private guys like Greenlight or Chalice up in Oregon. Are we going to see a, um, a massive M&A boom? Are we going to see companies, you know, start to borrow, like pick out like who the winners and losers are if you feel comfortable naming names? I'll name some names because I'm, I'm comfortable doing that. But you guys... Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And how does this play out? That's, I think you raised some, you raised some really good points, Lewis. I think, 
I do think you probably see an M, an M and A boom, um, right? If the stock prices start to run, the public companies. What, first, they're going to go out and raise money, right? Because really, these public companies have not been able to raise money for a few years now because stock prices have been so depressed. It's too dilutive, and there just isn't there just isn't large slugs of capital out there for them to raise. If these stock you know these stock prices go up three x four x, which you know would still leave them well below where they were three years ago, um, right? That that opens up n- new sources of capital, and I th- and, and that both new sources of capital and now cheaper paper. Um, Right, a less dilutive paper, I think, will lead to more M and A transactions. As far as who's going to be the winners and losers, I think it really depends on how that all plays out. Um, right, who's able to like look? The big guys are going to be able to raise more money than anybody else because their stocks are worth more. They're bigger companies. I think Phil's exactly right. Right, so the the first investors who've been sitting on the sidelines probably go to them. They will likely start looking to buy smaller to mid-size MSOs, single state operators in states that they aren't in where they can bolt on new dots on the map. Um, I also think you're likely to see a flurry of mid-tier, right, smaller to mid-tier companies getting together with one another, um, right, in order in order to, to, you know, to create a bigger footprint and put themselves on a, in, in, a, in a better competitive footing. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if you start to see you know, and, and I don't really want to, you know, uh, I would not make any predictions as to which companies are involved and are going to, or certainly who's going to get together. How about who? geographies? Like there are certain geographies that make sense. Like if you were a Midwest company and you don't have footprint on the East coast, it makes sense. That's exactly I think California right. is still such a shit show that you really like, it's its own country in and of itself. And, but you can see companies that have a lot of experience and exposure in Illinois, in Missouri, looking at, you know, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts and saying, this makes sense. Absolutely. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of regional MSOs at this point, um, right? Folks who have, who have focused their attention on the Northeast, on the Midwest, on the South or the Southeast, I could definitely see those companies getting together with one another. The challenge that the biggest MSOs are going to have with acquiring some of these mid-tier MSOs is going to be overlap, right? That geographic overlap. In particular, in many of these states, they have caps on the number of licenses that uh, that companies can hold. And that you saw this play out with the you know the the, the failed Columbia Care um, Cresco merger, uh, where they had a lot of overlap and they had a lot of regulatory challenges figuring out which ones to divest and which ones the regulators would allow them to divest. And uh, right, th- those types of challenges can really hold up these deals. Um, and I think companies have seen that over the last few years that that, that you know deals have been doomed because it's been really hard to work through this. And so I think companies are going to be looking mm-hmm. for um, this type of, of, you know, these types of mergers where they don't have that same kind of geographical overlap and where they can more easily, you know, put their dots on the map with another company's dots on the map. And now you've just got a bigger map rather than a more crowded map. So, and also to go on, because think? I think winners here, I, like I'm not going to name any names, but the ones that are liquid have, you know, decent volumes in their stocks. They're going to be the ones that are going to be able to raise capital here. Uh, you know, in yeah, terms Cure of M&A, Cureleaf is going to be the winner. In terms of M&A, I, I it, it, high quality companies, right? Like you're not just going to go into a state for the sake of buying something in say Michigan, right? They're, like there's a number of problems that are going on in that state, but looking at like the top 10 MSOs, they're going to be, they're definitely going to be the winners here. And also, you know, a number of these single state operators that, have the capacity to when interstate commerce happens, these guys will also be winners. 
like last house, right? Like I, I've been talking about, I mentioned how messed up California is, but Glasshouse is the biggest player in California. 280E goes away and they become a behemoth, right? From a revenue perspective, a profitability perspective, they all have the cash flow to look externally and full disclosure, we are, we represent Glasshouse. We haven't had this conversation with them directly, so I'm not disclosing anything, but like, this is a company that could do that. You look at, you know, a company like TrueWeave in Florida and, and the Southwest, they don't have a lot of exposure up North in the Midwest. They will have the, the, the financial wherewithal to expand. So um, last question for you guys, did you ever in a million years think this would happen now? And what's next? All right, listen, I'll, sorry, Chris. I'm just jumping in here because Lou, you and I, we we got into this 10 years ago. And you know, we were saying legalization was gonna happen by like 2018, 2020, and it just everything get, keeps getting punted down the road. For me, it's about fucking time. It's about fucking time we had a nice catalyst. So yeah, I'm ready. Uh, we've been waiting for this. Everybody's been waiting for this. So Hopefully this is the first step to get us <clears throat> to get these, this industry where it needs to be. Chris, you got into to this stuff. Hold on. You got into this stuff in the early nineties, right? You, when you were doing students for sensible drug policy, you were normal. You did forefront as a consulting company. You founded an MSO, you know, you, you have been in the, the policy advocacy uh, C-suite, like if anybody has had a, a, a front row seat to the racial change, it's you. So what do you think about this? Like, it, it, you know, I agree with Phil, it's about fucking time, but we've only really been doing this from a business perspective for 10 years. You've been doing this for almost 30. Yeah, 20. Well, yeah, almost 30. Yeah, I started in 1990, 1996 when I joined the uh, normal chapter at American University. And uh, we turned that into one of the first SSDP chapters in 1998. Um, so yeah, 20, what's 2024 already? Wow. So yes, 28 years. Um, so look, I mean, if, if I didn't think this was going to happen, I think my, you know, my entire professional life was be an exercise in futility. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, 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 I'm pretty happy to see that we've gotten here. I, 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 so yes, I always thought this was a possibility in terms of time frame. That's the one question that I never like to a answer because it's so difficult to predict and so out of our control and so based on you know political factors and who what parties in control of what branch of government and um, you know it's really hard to put a timeline on it. But you know it definitely has felt certainly since. Colorado and Washington voted to legalize cannabis in 2012. At, by that point, it's felt like this was going to happen at some point, right? Rescheduling is going to happen at some point. And frankly, it's it's felt like descheduling is going to happen at some point, and it still does, right? This is a this is a this is a a step towards ultimate federal legalization or descheduling, which I still think is going to happen. It's still just a matter of when um, and what the catalyst event is that causes that to happen. You know, frankly, it's it's wonderful that we're getting to the point where we're talking rescheduling and that we have a presidential administration that wants to do this. I think if we had a more progressive or certainly more drug, you know, drug policy or cannabis policy friendly 
president, we would, you know, if, if we had, you know, President Cory Booker, for example, right, if you look, or you take somebody who, who was running uh, four years ago, um, right, or, or even President Elizabeth Warren, or, you know, maybe even President Bernie, although he's been kind of mixed on this, right, like, we probably would be having this conversation today about descheduling and not about rescheduling. Um, we're having this conversation because we've got a president who has traditionally been one of the worst federal politicians on this issue, but who has come around somewhat and who has a political staff and a campaign staff in particular who recognizes that he needs this in order to catalyze and motivate young voters. Um, that's why this is happening. Um, but again, in, in terms of talking about like things that are out of our control, right? If we have, let's say, 2028, uh, President Gavin Newsom, um, uh, just again, I'm not, I'm not predicting that that's going to be the case, but just giving you an example, right? 2028. Yeah, you are. Well, no, no, I'm definitely not predicting that. Um, but, uh, you know, if we had a President Newsom or a president, even a President Kamala Harris, so that that's probably never going to happen. But um, we're going to be talking about federal legalization. Right. And if we have a President Ron DeSantis in 2028, we're probably not going to be talking about legalization until 2032 at the earliest. Um, so but but it's going to happen. Right. Like and having this perspective of having been in this 28 years and seeing this glacial pace, there's been no real backsliding. It's been forward momentum. It's been really slow. And for folks who've only been in this in for five or six years, it can feel extremely painfully slow. Um, but the, the but the progress is there and the movement is all in the right direction. And so this is a this is a huge deal. If I look at where we were in 2000 and 2001, when I started working full time at normal, to say that we're, you know, if I had been told in 2001 that we're going to be having a real, not just real conversation, but we're going to be looking at at at, at federal rescheduling, I'd have been absolutely thrilled, right? That'd be massive progress, right? That was difficult to to fathom when facing, you know, the a Bush administration that was, you know, that was that was threatening naval blockades of islands for, you know, of, of Caribbean islands for decriminalization, right? We've come a really long way. Um, and so if you can keep that historical perspective in mind, there, there's no reason to not be both happy about what's happening now and excited about what's what's going to come in the future. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end. Thank you, uh, Phil Carlson and Chris Crane. This has been a great conversation. Um, I also want to note that none of the public companies that I mentioned are we recommending either a buy, sell, or hold on their stock. Um, you know, this is not a stock picking show. What this is is a conversation about the policy, politics, and the business of cannabis and psychedelics. Um, you know. If you want to follow us, please do so on uh, all our social handles, which um, I'll drop into the the um, the show notes. Um, and uh, again, gentlemen, thank you so much for this. Absolutely. Always fun. Thanks, Chris.